Well, good morning. It's nice to see you all. And to those on Zoom or on YouTube, and I can't see you're also very welcome. We've now come to verse 5 in our series of studies in Psalm 23. And last week when we looked at verse 4, we noticed a change in the descriptive background of the psalm. We left behind the green pastures and the still waters and the paths of righteousness of the first three verses. And we entered the gloom of the darkest valley. We also noted that David changes from using the third person to the second person. And in verse 4, he talks directly to the shepherd. And he continues to use the second person in verse 5, where he brings before us three word pictures. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, depending on what version of the Bible you use, there may be a break between the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. If there is such a break, there is a reason for it. It's because there is another change of scene. When David writes, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, some commentators take the view that the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep is over. And in verse 5, a new metaphor or a new analogy is introduced. The idea now is of the host and his guest or guests. The late John Stott, for example, took that view. So too Derek Kidner wrote, the shepherd imagery <clears throat> has served its purpose to be replaced by one of greater intimacy. For those in that camp, the idea of sheep around a table with their cups overflowing is rather far-fetched. And so from that perspective, we say farewell to the Good Shepherd and we are introduced to the gracious host. On the other hand, there are those who take the opposite view. They see the imagery of the shepherd and his sheep continuing to the end of the psalm. For them, the idea of preparing a table for the sheep does not present a problem because in their view the picture presented here is of the high plateau of the sheep ranges those flat level areas where the sheep will graze during the summer months the tablelands we sometimes sing lord lift me up and let me stand by faith on heavens Tableland. But that raises the question how or in what sense is the table or the tableland prepared? During lockdown 
I had some time to read and I thought, I haven't really read enough of the classics. So I found a copy of Thomas Hardy's great novel, Tess of the D'Urbervilles. And in that novel, the happiest years of Tess's tragic life are spent in the employ of a dairy farmer called Mr. Crick. He is usually referred to as Dairyman Crick. And one day, Dairyman Crick receives a letter of complaint from a customer. There's something wrong with the butter. So some of the butter is brought into the farmhouse kitchen and is tasted. Dairyman Crick then realizes the cause of the problem and he exclaims, "'Tis garlic." And he recalls a particular area of pasture where garlic had grown years previously, causing the same problem. Such was the pungency of the herb that when it was eaten by the cows, the flavor still remained to spoil the milk and the butter. And in the next scene, Thomas Hardy brings before us a picture of Derryman Crick and his wife, and the milkmaids and the farmhands, forming themselves into a line and on hands and knees, inching their way over the meadow like police at a crime scene, looking for and uprooting the offending plant. And the preparation of the table or the tableland in this psalm will involve the shepherd having gone ahead of the sheep and most probably on his hands and knees, rooting out those particular types of grass which are toxic to sheep. It will involve him filling in the holes in the ground where snakes may lurk. It will involve him clearing the debris out of the watering holes and opening up the springs. And all this is carried out in the face of ever-present danger from predators in the presence of my enemies. So from that point of view, the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep does hold up. And it's not at all fanciful for David to say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then we come to the second statement. You anoint my head with oil. As I prepared for this address, I reread some portions from this little book. A shepherd looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. It is something of a classic and I recommend it to you. Philip Keller was a shepherd and he brought his first-hand experience of working with sheep to explore the meaning of Psalm 23. And on the subject of anointing my head with oil, this is part of what he had to say. Summertime is fly time. Their attacks can readily turn the golden summer months into a time of torture for sheep and drive them also almost to distraction. 
They will stamp their feet erratically and race from place to place in the pasture, trying desperately to evade the flies. At the very first sign of flies among the flock, the shepherd will apply an antidote to their heads. I always preferred to use a homemade remedy of linseed, sulfur and tar, which was smeared over the sheep's nose and head as a protection against flies. Once the oil had been applied to the sheep's head, there was an immediate change in behavior. Gone was the aggravation, gone the frenzy, gone the irritability and the restlessness. Instead, the sheep would start to feed quietly again, then soon lie down in peaceful contentment. A vivid description of the soothing, calming effect when you anoint my head with oil. Then the final statement, my cup overflows. Clearly, this image does lend itself more readily to the idea of a guest at a banquet whose glass or cup is always kept topped up. In fact, it's more than topped up. It's overflowing. And maybe that does pose a problem for those who want to maintain the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. After exhaustive research, I did, one, I did find one Jewish scholar who suggested that the word translated cup could also have the meaning of a drinking trough. Drinking troughs were situated beside wells or watering holes. And after drawing water from the well or watering hole, the shepherd would pour the water into the trough to enable the sheep to drink. You get an example of this in Exodus chapter 2 in a scene from the life of Moses. There we read of the seven daughters of Ruel, the priest of Midian, and how that they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And if, if the word cup can bear the meaning of a drinking trough, then the continuation of the theme of the shepherd and the sheep is sustainable. My cup overflows. Well, these are the three word pictures of verse 5. The prepared table, the anointed head, the overflowing cup. What lessons can we draw from them? Now, you may like the metaphor of the sheep grazing on an area of tableland prepared for them by the shepherd. Or you may prefer the image of a guest at a table where the Lord is the host. Personally, I don't think you have to choose between them. Because in each case, the underlying theme is the provision of God. Last week, we thought about the presence of God. as We saw that the theme of his presence runs throughout the Bible. So too does the theme of God's provision. 
In Genesis 22, we have the powerful story of Abraham and Isaac played out on the summit, the tableland of Mount Moriah. Abraham has been told by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Isaac innocently asks, Father, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. At the last minute, Isaac is spared, and a ram caught by its horns in a thicket is sacrificed in his place. And the story ends in verse 14 with this detail. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. In Hebrew, Yahweh Yireh. We are more familiar with the rendition in the authorized version, Jehovah Jireh, one of the names attributed to God in the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God acting true to his name. The Lord will provide. We see it in his provision for the children of Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness, sustaining them with manna and quail meat. We see it in 1 Kings 17 with God using the ravens to bring food to Elijah. This theme of God's miraculous provision continues in the New Testament, often seen in the context of an abundance of food and drink. The Lord's first recorded miracle was to turn water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Think of the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. It's interesting to note that to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like, the Lord Jesus compared it to a wedding banquet or feast. And in Luke's gospel where we have the great parable of the prodigal son, that story that so accurately portrays the waywardness of the human heart and the patience and the love of God. How does that parable end? It ends with a feast to celebrate the return of the son who once was lost but now is found. But the ultimate expression of God's provision is the gift of his son. Summed up in those momentous words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Can there be any greater provision than this? And to help us focus on that provision, and reinforce it to our hearts, we come Sunday after Sunday to a table, to a prepared table, to a table on which bread and wine have been placed. And as the bread and is broken and the wine poured out, we are reminded of the body of the Lord Jesus, 
broken for us and of his blood shed for us. For Christians, that is the high point of the week when we gather around or before the table to remember the Lord. C.H. Spurgeon expressed it perfectly. What food luxurious loads the board. When at his table sits the Lord, the wine how rich, the bread how sweet, when Jesus deigns the guests to meet. And while one purpose of that meeting together is to look back to the death of Christ, it also points forward to a future event. That future event is a feast. It is known as the wedding supper or the marriage supper of the Lamb described by John in the book of Revelation. It describes that future moment when Christ, the Lamb of God, is finally united with his redeemed people, the church, portrayed as a bride. And so in Revelation 19, verse 7, the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And in verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The prepared table. You anoint my head with oil. There are possibly three ways of looking at this. One way is to consider what anointing means. In the Old Testament, to be anointed was to be set apart for service to God. Exodus chapter 30 describes how Aaron and his sons were to be anointed with oil before they could serve as priests. In 1 Samuel, Saul was anointed king by Samuel, as in turn was David. In the book of 1 Kings, Elijah is instructed by God to anoint Elisha to succeed him as prophet. And so you have the anointing of priests, of kings, and of prophets. The Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, from which we derive the word Messiah. In New Testament Greek, Messiah is translated as Christos, which gives, of, gives us the name or title Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the Anointed One. We see this from Luke's description of the day when the Lord began his earthly ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth reading those words from the prophecy of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And when he had finished reading, he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke also records the words of Peter in Acts chapter 10, you know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth 
with the Holy Spirit and power. And so began the ministry of the Messiah, the Christ. As we have said, to be anointed is to be set apart for service to God. And when Paul wrote his great epistle to the Romans, he began by describing himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. How does Peter describe the Christians to whom he wrote his first letter? Surely he must have had in mind the anointing of those priests and kings in the Old Testament. And so in 1 Peter 2.9, he tells his readers, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. As Christians, we too are set apart for God's service. That is why Paul can tell the Ephesians, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The second way of looking at this picture of the anointed head takes us back to the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. We have already heard Philip Keller's description of the soothing, calming effect of the sheep when the oil was applied. Last week, we quoted the Lord's promise in John 14 to his disciples, the promise of the spirit of truth, another comforter to be with you forever. We saw also last week that it is the role of the Holy Spirit to make the love of God and the presence of God real to us. And so in the midst of our torments, our irritations, our anxieties, our worries, the flies in our life, Paul can say to the Corinthians, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. But if we adopt the alternative idea of the host and his guest, there is a third interpretation which can be suggested by the anointing with oil. In the New Testament, to anoint the head of a guest with oil was to honor that guest. And in the four Gospels, there are three scenes from the life of the Lord Jesus depicted. Three scenes which in some ways are similar, but which have significant differences. Both Matthew and Mark describe a scene where the Lord Jesus is reclining at table in the house of Simon the leper at Bethany, two days before Passover. A woman who is not identified enters the house breaks open an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and pours it over the Lord's head. 
In Matthew's account, the disciples are outraged by this extravagance. In Mark's account, the objection comes from some of those present. The Lord's response is, she has done a beautiful thing to me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. The point is that in this story, the woman honors the Lord by anointing his head. In Luke's gospel, this time the Lord Jesus is a guest of Simon the Pharisee. Again, a woman enters the house carrying an alabaster jar of perfume. The sinful past of the woman is emphasized. She pours the perfume on the feet of the Lord. This time the objection comes from, ironically, Simon the host. And this draws a triple rebuke from the Lord. Simon had failed to provide the customary water for the feet of his guest. This woman had washed the Lord's feet with her tears. Simon had failed to honor the Lord with a kiss. This woman had not stopped kissing his feet. Simon had failed to pour oil on the head of his guest. This woman had poured perfume on his feet. The point is that this host had failed to honor the Lord by not pouring oil on the head of his guest. Then in John's gospel, the scene is set again at Bethany. But this time the events take place six days before Passover. This time the house is the house of Lazarus. And this time the woman is identified. She is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. On this occasion, Mary pours the perfume over the feet of the Lord. This time the objection comes from Judas. But the common theme of these three stories is the honor shown to the Lord by the, these women by anointing him in the light of what was to come, namely his death and burial. In Christ, we have been anointed with the Spirit in the light of what is to come. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So the significance of the anointed head, we have been set apart for service. We experience God's comfort in the trials of life. We are honored with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And finally, my cup overflows. Our time is gone, but that doesn't matter because in one sense we don't have to say very much more. Sometimes to say less is to say more. When we consider the provision of God to us, for us. And 
when we appreciate the different aspects of our anointing, this is the inevitable response. In John chapter 10, where the Lord defined himself as the gate for the sheep and the good shepherd, he said this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And as I thought how I might draw these thoughts to a conclusion, I realized that someone has done it for me. His name is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he provides us with a fitting conclusion. As he came near the end of his letter to the Romans, in chapter 15, verse 13, he wrote these words. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time spent reflecting upon and listening to your word. We thank you for the the provision that you have made for us, how you have lavished your love on us. We thank you for our anointing and what that means. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to dwell on these things and carry them in our hearts that we may overflow, that our cups may overflow. In Jesus' name.